Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guide of funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching on our YouTube broadcast or at FunkinStuff.net, or listening to the audio version on iTunes or from other leading providers. As always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support. This episode features a living legend of jazz and jazz funk drumming, Mr. Mike Clark. As a child prodigy growing up in California's Bay Area, Clark gained worldwide notoriety and acclaim as a member of Herbie Hancock's Headhunters Band. Perhaps the most accomplished and successful funk jazz group of all time, the Headhunters also included Benny Maupin, Paul Jackson, Bill Summers, who has also appeared in Truth and Rhythm, and later on, Blackbird McKnight. Together during the 1970s, they lit up recording studios and stages with Herbie Hancock's Thrust, Manchild, and Flood albums, as well as their own albums as the Headhunters, Survival of the Fittest, and Straight from the Gate. Those records included classic tracks like Palm Grease, Actual Proof, Hang Up Your Hangups, Steppin' In It, God Made Me Funky, and Straight from the Gate. Although Clark did not originally record it, he also carried the torch in concert for Hancock's magnificent hit, Chameleon. Among the many other um, acts and artists that Clark recorded with, were Betty Davis, Buddy Miles, Alfonso Johnson, Eddie Henderson, Brian Auger, Patrice Russian, Christian McBride, John Schofield, Wayne Shorter, Joe Henderson, Bobby Hutcherson, Woody Shaw, Albert King, Larry Coriel, Lonnie Smith, Jerry Reed, and Lenny White. He left the Headhunters in the late 1970s in pursuit of his true passion for more traditional jazz. To that end, Clark has released dozens of jazz albums under his own name and that of his various collaborators. One highlight was 1992's The Funk Stops Here with his longtime buddy and fellow former headhunter Paul Jackson on bass. Despite some misgivings with the funkier and more accessible side of jazz, Clark, along with Bill Summers, spearheaded the revival of the headhunters in the late, 19, uh, late 1990s with the return of the Headhunters album. Since then, Evolution Revolution followed in 2003 with the In Concert On Top Live in Europe in 2008 and Platinum in 2011. The release of a new Headhunters project called Speakers in the House is imminent. Truth and Rhythm caught up with the ever busy Clark from his Manhattan base during a recording break and just prior to a West Coast, uh, West Coast trip. He proved to be a somewhat reluctant funker as although that music is what has brought him the most fame and money, it has also served as his ticket to be able to perform the straight-ahead jazz he loves the most. Anyway you slice it, Clark always has and continues to move to the beat of his own drum. I'm glad to welcome to Truth and Rhythm, one of the great jazz and jazz funk drummers, Mr. Mike Clark. Mike, how are you? Good. I'm doing great. How you doing, Scott? <clears throat> I'm doing well. Appreciate you carving out some time and joining me today. 
Oh, well, I, I'm my pleasure. I'm all about it. Let's do it. <laughs> where, where, do, where do I find you today? I'm in New York. I'm in Manhattan at my place here. That I, I don't know if you can see it out the window. Probably not, but it's all out there waiting for me. <laughs> it's going yeah. on out there. So, yeah, I'm back. Uh, I just got back from Cleveland, and tomorrow I'm heading to the West Coast. Uh, busy guy. You never slow down, do you? I don't, I haven't so far. I wouldn't mind, but uh, I don't want to, I'm still, I have that mentality where I don't say no to too many gigs. So I like, it, it, you know, what else am I going to do? Sit around and watch TV? I might as well go to work, you know? You know? What's that saying? Making hay while the sun's shining? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. While, excellent. I can, while I can still play, you know what I mean? Geez, oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so glad that you're still out there doing it. Uh, we've enjoyed you for all these decades and keep going, man. Keep going. I'm going to try. Thank you so much. <clears throat> so, uh, as I mentioned to you, I've been a fan ever since, you know, the Headhunters days and going back to that. So, um, can you tell the uh, viewers uh, basically how you first got in into drums? What drew you to it? And did you come from a musical family? Yeah, my dad was a drummer, not a very good one. And he had a huge jazz collection that he played constantly. So there was always a drum set and jazz records in the house, like from when I was born. And uh, he was a party type guy. So he also had uh, what they now call jump music, Louis Jordan, all of this type of thing. And uh, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, on and on and on. And so I started playing really at four or five years old. And then I started playing professionally, believe it or not, at seven or eight, because he would take me to the gigs where his friends were playing. And I could play time and solo and do all that stuff. And so like uh, I would be, I, I was a child drummer. Uh, thanks to him. And uh, so I didn't really, it was sort of an un, 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 unavoidable karmic destiny, if you will. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of all I know, you know. And was was uh, jazz played, you know, as you're growing up and um, yeah. you're from, from the Bay Area, is that right? I'm from Sacramento. Uh -huh. And uh, I was born in Sacramento, but uh, being that he was a railroad man, he moved to Pittsburgh. Roanoke, Fort Worth, Dallas, uh, Atlanta, uh, a couple others I can't even remember, uh, I think. And um, uh, so he would meet all the local musicians and have me go play with those guys, and, uh, and they would take an interest in me. So everywhere we went, New Orleans, he stayed there for six months, and I met a bunch of guys on Bourbon Street. Yeah, it was all jazz in those days, like Little Richard and Elvis had just started. No, nobody played that except those guys. It, later, that became a popular thing to do in nightclubs. But it was all big band swing more than bebop, you know. And then uh, one day he came home with an Art Blakey record. I was only about eight or nine. And, that, and then it knocked me out. So I started, I found out about Charlie Parker and everybody else from that one record. You know, and I think if my memory serves me well, it was Son of Drum Suite, mm -hmm. you know, anyway. <laughs> so when when did you realize that that was going, you were going to make a career and a lifetime out of that? 
uh, it's seven or eight. I knew I played all day, every day, played oh. some, all my records. And, you know, I never thought about doing anything else. It never, I, I did consider one time I get, I was thinking about maybe being a lawyer. Cause I, 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 I like to, I don't like to argue anymore. I'm older, but I used to like to argue. <laughs> so I thought, well, I've been a pretty good lawyer, I guess, but yeah, I, I never did anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> It reminds me of when I was in grade school, one of my teachers told me um, uh, that I should go to law because I liked, you know, arguing. Yeah, it's a good, We I'd have made a lot of money, or I think, maybe. <laughs> well, hopefully uh, you've taken some of that into the business side of the industry as you've got on. But um, what, uh, uh, Mike, were your first, uh, you know, your early professional gigs? Well, like I say, I guess I was seven or eight years old and there was a place in Roanoke where there was an organ group and uh, it wasn't a hardcore swinging Jimmy Smith kind of organ group. It was more like standards and laid back and, and they had me come in as a guest soloist. Later on, I soloed, I'd come in as a guest soloist with the Jimmy Dean show and I played the Blue Room in uh, New Orleans and... Uh, and then I played a, a bit with a guy named Mike Lala, a trumpet player on Bourbon Street. And they would have me, you know, because I was so young, I couldn't play the whole gig. They didn't mind that I was in the nightclubs. Nobody ever said a word about that in those days. But, uh, you know, I would come in and play a couple of tunes and I think I'd get $10, $12. And uh, I'd play Sweet Georgia Brown or uh, uh, something like this and play a drum solo. And uh, uh, those were my first paid gigs. And then by the time I was uh, 12 to 15, I had my own band and I, and I was kind of an aggressive um, band leader. I would book Shakey's Pizza Parlor in Sacramento and, uh, you know, any place where I could have a little group and make a little money. And I did pretty good. And then by the time I was 14 or 15, I was working... Uh, that's uh, actual gigs with adults, you know, like play four hour gigs. And I knew all the standards and I knew what all the drummers did. I mean, uh, uh, pretty much not every note, but, you know, I knew all of, I knew how Philly Joe played Max and uh, Sonny Payne, Gene and Buddy, Louie. Uh, I dug Denzel best, uh, um, you know, uh, Sam Woodyard, I met, and he taught me about the ride cymbal scoop and ice cream, he called it. How to get the dirty quarter note out and make it swing. And uh, um, it's just been a lifetime. So I've just been playing to this very day, from, from 12 till now, a lot of flying time log, flying hours, sky miles. <laughs> you know, uh, that was, that's my story. That's what happened to me, you know. Uh, who, who were some of the um, prominent recording artists around that time that had an influence on you? You mean the people that I listened to that had an, that I was, uh, oh, well, um, uh, okay. Uh, uh, I'd say uh, uh, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Charlie Parker, uh, um, Sonny Rollins, all Max and Clifford. Uh, all of that, Art Blakey for days, um, uh, and and a, uh, this is before I knew about uh, um, Miles, of course, and uh, later on, 
in the in the around uh, my senior year in high school, I started getting a little bit into Coltrane. I, I, it was a little deep for me to try to understand that the other stuff I could kind of pretty much understand. But uh, um, and then on the other side, I was um, on the uh, you could make a living playing rhythm and blues in those days when you couldn't get a jazz game. So I was into little Johnny Taylor, of course, BB live at the Regal um, and BB any on anything. And uh, <clears throat> let's see, Albert King, Albert Collins. Uh, Jimmy Reed, um, James Brown, even in the 50s, I was into James Brown. I was aware of him, you know, and whatever uh, Atlantic, Ray Charles, uh, uh, and whatever you heard on the radio when you were driving your car, or even before I could drive there, you know, rock and roll in those days wasn't rock like uh, a big rock band. It was like... Uh, The Coasters, uh, you know, I, um, I can't think of all. Do uh, what? Yeah, you know, the, but it was, uh, it, most of it was rhythm. Most of the rock was rhythm and blues, you know. Like rockabilly, uh, yeah. Yeah, and so I was into all that because I was that age and that my girlfriends loved all that. And so I had to, you know, had to make sure I was on that, you know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, to keep that going on. And um and then I uh, uh, also in high school, I played in a lot of actual rhythm and blues bands that had really good horn sections and uh, and some good uh, and some great jazz bands as well. Young people's jazz bands. In, in my recollection, they were fairly sophisticated. You know, we were trying, <laughs> you know. Mike, how did you uh, carve out your own style? You know, how did you? run with what you had picked up and make it your own you know in those days i tell people this i get asked this a lot in those days you could uh tell who the drummer was by his sound his touch and his ideas we didn't all uh sound like we we're playing the same drum set well they didn't i wasn't part of that yet but <clears throat> what uh, i spoke to several drummers my age lenny white uh uh couple other guys uh, and we used to the way i recall and i'm pretty sure that uh, uh, i mean my memory is pretty good I, I, you know you would listen to art blakey so you would tune your drums like that and make an attempt to play like him then you'd listen to max he had a tighter higher sound you'd tune your drums like that and make an attempt to play like him there were no transcriptions or if there were i never saw any and uh, so you had to make you had to figure your own way of trying to do what those guys were doing. And in doing that, since you didn't, I didn't know what they were doing, I kind of came up with my way of doing things, thinking I was impersonating them. And eventually, I started playing my own ideas based on what they did. So I never thought a copy in one guy. Uh, guys did that later, you know, but at that time, you kind of, you went through all those guys and and uh, out of that. And the same with the rhythm and blues. Like when I got older, Clyde and Jabbo showed up on the set way before anybody even knew their name. And Purdy, uh, even before Purdy. So I was checking out the R&B cats and the blues cats, how they tuned their snare, how they played the shuffle, this, that, and the other. And I just, uh, I didn't know exactly what they were doing. <clears throat> 
<clears throat> so I did I did things my own way, and and I was close enough, and then that became my style, you know. Of I just I don't know. I never copied anybody or wrote. I never transcribed a guy's solo. Not to this day. Try to learn a guy's solo or anything like that. I <clears throat> it didn't seem. Uh, I think all that happened for people later, but uh, Herbie also influenced me heavily. He was like <clears throat> when I first. Uh, <laughs> to counterdict myself now after all that when i first uh auditioned for herbie um i tried to play like tony and elvin all in one guy something like this over the top of a funk thing right and i had an 18 inch bass drum tuned really tight and old k cymbals that weren't really i don't think they were old then and uh uh my Gret, my little 18 inch Gretsch drum kit, two toms. And he stopped and he said, uh, well, he said, you're a hell of a drummer, but if I wanted Tony, I'd just call him. He's a good friend of mine. I want to hear you. So Paul Jackson and I, Paul was my dear friend, the bass player, my best friend. We had done some funk gigs and we had this, uh, our own way of playing the funky thing. And uh, it came from, uh, we shared this big house together, me and him and a couple other guys, we were young guys, and we would play every once in a while, let's play Mercy Mercy, or let's play a Horace tune and play it funky style. And that's how I made up that 16th note thing, you know? And so Paul and I had our version of that. And so the first time we heard the Tower of Power, they were in a similar ballpark. I thought I was the only guy that did stuff like that. When I heard David, I love Garibaldi. He's a very dear friend and a brilliant artist. Uh, but when I first heard him, I actually got kind of mad. <laughs> I was like, who's this cat, man? You know what I mean? Like, and it was funny. And, uh, but um, then that, him and I sort of got popular. I think it would have happened anyway. You know how things go. People, uh, uh, like in that case, you have Purdy, you have Clyde, you have Jabbo. Somebody was going to take the three or four of those guys, uh, how, you know, a couple other guys, whoever the popular guys were, Melvin Parker, and move it forward. Or what we thought, I don't know whether we moved it forward. That's kind of a weird thing to say, but do something to it, alter it, because I'm not those guys, you know, and I didn't know exactly the stickings or what they were doing. So I started coming up with that broken thing and it sounded and I could play, I never had funk vocabulary, so to speak. Like I never played, you know, I never, I always played jazz licks, my Roy Haynes-ish, Elvin-ish weirdness, whatever guy you want to use to kind of relate to what I do. I came from all those guys. So I sprinkled that over the top of the funk whenever I played a, I didn't play fills, it was like an improv, you know. But I'm, I, of course, I can do the regular two and four crack and play the fills and stuff because I made a million records where I had to, you know, to, to get the rent, you had to do that. So I'm cool with that, too. How, how did you find out about Herbie needing a drummer? Um, I have this here, which um, Harvey Mason was on this one. So what had transpired that um, there was a change? Well, first of all, Harvey was doing so good in the studio making a living and he owned a couple of homes and he was a smart guy with his money plus a brilliant artist uh and he wasn't going to go on the road for 
$300 a week in those days. So they needed a drummer. Now, Paul Jackson was the bass player in Herbie's band. He had just hired Paul, and Paul was my best friend. So that's how I heard about it. But I wasn't interested because I knew it was going to be a funk gig. And I was like, I don't know, man, that's going to wreck my jazz career. And I was making more money playing with Joe Henderson and Bobby Hutchison and those guys in San Francisco and Vince Guaraldi. And I was doing quite well. And I was playing the music I love. I like funk as much as anybody, but I don't know. I, I, I don't really love playing it. I know that sounds weird because I did those records. But uh, it's not my favorite thing. I don't mind playing recording a couple of weird modern funk tracks or something, but I'm not really that guy to put mm -hmm. in a loud funk band with a singer and a horn section on, you know, maybe one tune when I've had a beer, like, yeah. And then after that, I'm like, I'm out of here. So I, Herbie kept calling the house every day <clears throat> to talk to Paul, who was never there. And he ended up talking to me and I love this guy. We had all these great conversations. He's a sweet cat, smart, knows everything, told me all about Tony Williams and the Miles. That's what I wanted to know about the Miles band. I, poor guy, I drove him nuts with that. Anyway, <clears throat> so one day he said, hey, man, Paul tells me, uh, I know you're the guy that plays jazz with Woody Shaw, but Paul tells me you have your own funk ideas, some weird kind of funk. You want to come play with me and see if it works? And I said, okay, sure. I'm not going to turn past that up. Are you kidding so I went over and played with him, and he hired me. And he was such a nice guy. I told him, I said, well, Herbie, you know, quite frankly, um, you're one of my heroes. And uh, if I go with you playing this style, this is what everybody's going to think of me, and it's going to screw my jazz career up. Maybe it's going to screw it up. And he said, you know what? You're right. You, that may happen. But if you come with me, I'll teach you all about the road, how to be a musician, this, that, and the other. I'll teach you a lot of stuff, and everybody will hear of you. Now, you tell that to a guy 25 years old, everybody will hear of you. I'm like, okay, I'm on the game. And, I, I mean, he wasn't begging me. He was, it was a very adult conversation. He's a very nice man, so you could, you know, you could talk to him like this. And uh, I was worried about that because I was doing quite anyway so I went with him and it was a fantastic experience I mean just being around that guy he's a good he's fun so it's fun yeah that was fun <laughs> that was fun actual proof lasted me a lifetime so I owe Hancock a debt of gratitude for eternity for allowing me to play on that track and do do whatever that was I did and what everybody else did, too. <laughs> so did he pretty much uh, leave you to your own devices to kind of come up with what you wanted to? On that tune, he did. And on the others, it was more uh, they wanted uh, less drumming. I, I played the other tunes that style with a lot, an interaction. I was kind of listening to Jack Dijonette in those days. And, and Lenny, of course, was my friend. And I was playing more like those guys. And, and he was like, well, cut it, dial it way back, and except on actual proof, do how you do. Do whatever you want to do. But on the other ones, give me some two and four. They didn't call it pocket and have all that language in those days. So I did. That's what it was. Other than that, uh, on the road, sometimes we'd take some of those more pedestrian tunes like palm grease and uh, whatever and stretch them way out depending on what yeah, night what it was. Yeah. And then that. Now, there's a story behind that. I'm not sure I should tell it, but because I'm perverse, I will. 
Bring it on. We recorded There's Another Night, and it's much better than this. And we recorded two nights. We only were scheduled to record one night, and we nailed it. It was it was much better. I don't mean there was any more technique or innovation or whatever you want to call it going down. It's the same stuff, but it was just way more on time and more. We took more chances. It was just seriously one of those nights that was magic. So afterwards, we went out and celebrated in Tokyo, and we all got hammered bad. We stayed up all night, food, drinking, laughing. So the next day, we go to Osaka, and when we get there, the sound truck is there. And we're like, why is the sound truck here? And this guy that was Herbie's manager said, well, we decided to do two nights, and we're like, and we're all hungover. Oh, my God. So... I, oh, no, because I knew that this manager wasn't going to know the good night from the bad, if, the, if this wasn't up the par. He wouldn't know the difference. I knew that about him. And we already knew, me and Paul were like, oh, man, we put our best stuff on, you know, what about, so we played and it wasn't as good. It wasn't as in sync and it wasn't as sensitive and it wasn't as uh, burning. And it, it turned out to be a benefit because it sounds good. People that don't know the difference of the first night, they've never heard it. So there's nothing to compare it to. So they like it. But I remember thinking, if we do these two nights, this guy's going to put out the second night. He's not going to even know the difference. And he didn't. And so it doesn't bother me. I, I mean, it's I'm to me, it worked fine. It, it ended up working fine. But that's hey, a true story. Hey, you know, uh, Herbie and the Headhunters on, on an off night ain't bad. <laughs> yeah, even on an off night, we're pretty good. Because <laughs> we've been out there four years ruminating. So, you know, like... <laughs> Or three and a half or whatever it was for about no days off Harley forever. So, I mean, you know, we got pretty good at it. But um, anyway, yeah, that's the story. It's a funny story. Uh, it's not a sour grape story. It's actually, I, I actually think it's funny as hell. <laughs> you know, kind of. <laughs> what, what were, uh, we talked about Paul, we talked about Herbie. What was uh, 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 Benny and, um, and Bill, what were those guys like? Bill was uh, uh, very easy to play with. He's got a marvelous feel, and he blends right into whatever you're doing. And uh, um, uh, he's also a museethnologist, I guess you would say, and he knows uh, he still studies African music, Afro everything all the time. You go on the road, he's got new books with new information. So he was... Uh, um, an energized guy that uh, uh, that I, uh, I he was fun to play with and uh, um, and a crazy cat. He's uh, we're still together, uh, still arguing uh, and having fun. And uh, uh, Benny was different. Benny was like had a, a kind of a um, uh, I think he was more interested in the free style of jazz music. And that's the feeling I got from him that this particular music he was capable of playing, but I, I'm not sure. It, I don't know how he felt about it because he wasn't very uh, uh, verbal about it, and uh, it didn't matter to me what one way or the other. I mean, uh, you know, I, I still know Benny, and uh, everything's cool, but I never. Uh, he, he wasn't like uh, uh, he was aloof. That's what I felt. You yeah. know, that's the kind of guy he is. He's a good man. He's a good cat. Uh, um, but he, you know, Benny's got uh, his own way of uh, 
he walks his own path and he's the only one on it. You know, I mean, he'll let you on there sometimes, but he doesn't always want anybody on there. I can dig it. <laughs> That's my perception of him of how he was at that time. That's a long time ago, but, but I may be wrong, but that's what I felt, you know, something like that. You'd have to ask him. He'll tell you, <laughs> you know. Well, you mentioned other nights. I, I thought I would hold these up. I don't know if you remember these, but uh, you got um, Omaha in 75 and uh, Boston 73. So. I remember Boston 73, but I don't remember Omaha. And I don't... Uh, 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 a lot has happened since then. So I, I, you know, I don't, uh, I just remember there was a period where we were really burning. Like we were, we were really trying to do something and take it somewhere. And then everything started to get quite commercial and it started to sound like a band that needed a singer, like a backup group. And that's when I started to become really unhappy. And I decided to go back to my jazz thing. And I, I was, I no longer fit the band. At one point I was an important cog in the wheel, but when it became like a straight gig, straight time gig, I let everybody know the best that I could without being a complete drag that this really wasn't what I wanted to do with my life while on earth. And so it wasn't long before I went my own way. Yeah, so this was the last one, Manchild. Ironically, this is the one that brought me to the group because of my age. Right. I was, you know, like junior high or something at that time, and I heard this, and uh, I loved it. And then I went back, of course, for the other stuff. Um, but this was the last one for you. And um, Blackbird McKnight also came in on that one, right? So, uh, yeah, yeah we, guitar. Yeah, well, well, that that's when to me it had gotten really nothing to do with Blackbird. He's a great artist, but. Uh, uh, it has not, it's nothing to do with him at all, but the, but the, the powers that be were making the band, well, we've got to make money and, and da, da, da. And of course, everybody needs to make money, but I, uh, the, I, they were trying to get a hit record, I, I think, in my mind. And, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, uh, except, uh, you know, a lot of that record, except for maybe two tracks, Paul and I laid down some simple bass and drums, and he and Herbie took the the bass and drums down to LA and put a whole bunch of stuff on it. So some of those tunes had no titles. They were just like, Hey, play a groove for five minutes or something like this. So it wasn't like we were all playing some of those tunes. I don't even know the name of, cause I never, I do have the record, but uh, it's hard to listen to because I just remember it was like the beginning of less like, okay, you two guys play a groove and then uh, see you later. And that was it. I, I remember we did play live, uh, the very first dun 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 dun, whatever that is, we played that. That was real, you know. Hang up your hangups. Yeah, we played that one uh, live, uh, and uh, the rest of stuff. Um, and I'm not the only drummer. Harvey and James Gadsden were on a couple, you know. He, uh, uh, but whatever else I did on there, I don't. I'm not. I don't think the band was actually playing with us. I think it was just me and Paul. Mm. Yeah. So, and of course, Herbie went on to try much more commercial stuff uh, later on. So, uh, probably good that you ducked out when you did if you didn't want to get that commercial.
Thank you.